This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. Are the Vicars of England about to go on strike? That story's coming up. Now, ever since Vladimir Putin launched his war on Ukraine, he's pushed the idea that Russia faces a military threat from NATO expanding right up to Russia's border. But there's another motive at play. It's buried deep inside key Russian security documents. It's the doctrine of so-called spiritual security. Christina Stürkel is a professor at the Free University in Rome and she wrote about this doctrine in the Review of Faith and International Affairs. From the perspective of Vladimir Putin, but also of Russian nationalists and the Russian Orthodox Church, the West has always been a threat for Russia because the West stands for a different set of values. It stands for individualism rather than collectivism. It stands for individual self-determination rather than one strong state. It also stands for religious pluralism rather than a managed religious plurality with orthodoxy on the top. The West questions the Russian understanding of society, of what a good society is, and Ukraine orienting itself towards the EU and the West puts that Russian self-understanding at risk. How is the idea also, because I found this really interesting in your article, how is the idea of spiritual security also connected with Russia's security apparatus? I mean, the FSB, the successor to the KGB. This is really a very interesting aspect that you're pointing out. In very material terms, the spiritual security doctrine is connected with the security apparatus through symbolism, so the Russian Orthodox Church providing chapels, icons, blessings to parts of the security apparatus, to people, to buildings. That is one way where you see this demonstrative proximity of the security apparatus and the Russian Orthodox Church. But this actually has roots that go back all the way to the 1980s, already during the perestroika period, when the Russian Orthodox Church was being rehabilitated in the public sphere as a foundation, as a source of national purpose for the Russian Federation as it was coming out of the Soviet Union. So there are clear ideological and also personal connections between the state apparatus and the Orthodox Church. When you say, uh, Christina, clear personal connections, are we talking here about something as basic as the fact that there were many Russian Orthodox priests who may well have been KGB agents? Yes, of course, because it takes two sides in order to have a partnership. And it's pretty clear that the Russian state coming out of the fall of the Soviet Union was in need of a new idea of national purpose. And it wasn't far-fetched to look to the Orthodox Church and religion as a substitute. But it was not immediately clear that the church would buy into that. Because after all, the Russian state has been a source of repression for the church for generations during the Soviet Union. But you are right. Many clergy, and we know that even Patriarch Kirill himself, 
actually collaborated with the security apparatus during the Soviet Union. Um, so this was a world they knew, and this was the world they accepted, and they accepted this cooperation between the church and the security apparatus. I found this particular phrase very interesting. How does the church in Russia give the FSB a sense of, quote, moral mission? The Russian Orthodox Church has settled on the narrative that Russia is special in the world because it has the tradition of Orthodox Christianity that is different from Western Christianity. It has a trajectory that differs from the nation states in Europe and that it has a purpose also beyond the borders of the Russian Federation. So there's an imperial idea in the Russian Orthodox understanding of the Russian world, that world that covers Russian speakers also outside the borders of the Russian Federation. And this is a spiritual idea and a spiritual unity. Translated into political terms, this means that politically Russia tries to gain a foothold in these countries and interfere with these countries. In the worst case, as we've seen now in Ukraine, but we've seen it also before in Georgia, through military intervention. Yeah, and hasn't the Russian Orthodox Church even consecrated a cathedral in the name of the military? Did I read that? Yes, that's true. So at the height of COVID, the West was not paying attention, but it was in June 2021 that the military cathedral on the outskirts of Moscow was inaugurated for the armed forces. The cathedral is an interesting building with a striking iconography using spoils of war from the Second World War as parts of the decoration. The main idea here is that the victory over Nazi Germany in 1945 was an achievement not only of the Soviet state, which it was at the time, but of the entire Russian people. And this included also the Orthodox Church. And just finally on this point, uh, Christina, because it's so interesting, what has the Russian Orthodox Church done to the site of the old KGB headquarters right in the heart of Moscow? You're referring to the fact that at the Lubyanka, we now find a small chapel on the premises of that KGB headquarter. And that chapel really was inaugurated already over 20 years ago. At the time, the head of the FSB was Nikolai Patrushev, who is now the general secretary of the Russian Security Council. And he was personally very much interested in offering a space of worship on the premises of the FSB to the Russian Orthodox Church. And the speeches that were held on that occasion were also interesting because they inaugurated, let's say, before documenting this in in legal documents, the idea of a spiritual security, of the need to cooperate in spiritual, religious terms for the security of Russia. Christina, you've talked about spiritual security placing the Russian Orthodox Church at the apex, at the top. It is important, though, to point out spiritual security in Russia under this doctrine does include other traditional religions in Russia, doesn't it? I mean, what are some of those? It is true that the spiritual security doctrine has the idea of a hierarchy of religions in Russia. So the Russian Orthodox Church, as the biggest church, is placed on the top. But then the Russian Muslim communities, 
are also part of that doctrine, as are Russian Buddhist communities and other Christian religions. So Protestants, Baptists, and Catholics, and of course, also the Jewish community. But there is a clear hierarchy. The idea of spiritual security, which thinks about pluralism in the country as being something that has to be carefully managed and controlled, is a rival to another understanding of security, that of comprehensive security, which is the one mostly endorsed by Western countries, which really starts from the idea that pluralism is a source of security. So equal rights and also equal representation actually make a state stronger and more secure. Whereas the spiritual security concept, which is the more traditional security concept we find in Russia, but also in other countries like China, the idea is that if you give security to someone or if you give rights to someone, then you will actually be taking away rights from someone else and this will create tensions. So the idea of the spiritual security doctrine is that of control, if need be of repression, whereas a comprehensive security understanding in terms of religious pluralism would be that of equal treatment and rights. Um, Reading your piece in the Review of Faith and International Affairs, I was uh, intrigued to learn that one of the original motivations for the spiritual security doctrine was a fear of Western missionaries, principally missionaries coming from the United States. On issues like the traditional family, wouldn't those Western missionaries be totally on the same page as the Russian Orthodox Church, at least today? Yes, and they still are. And I think that to a certain extent, the conservative family teaching that we have seen coming out of the Russian Orthodox Church in the last years is the fruit of the collaboration during the 1990s between the Orthodox Church and missionaries. I've written about that in my last book, co-authored with a Russian colleague, Dmitry Uslana, called The Moralist International, Russia and the Global Culture Wars. During the 1990s, the Russian law of religious freedom allowed the influx of missionaries from the West. So in the first half of the 1990s, many Orthodox actors weren't even unhappy about that because they felt that there was a big need for, let's say, re-evangelization or re-religionization of the nation that had been, you know, militantly atheist for generations. But the good relations turned sour very quickly because the Russian Orthodox Church started to see these other Christian groups as competitors. And so in 1997, a new law on religious organizations was passed that made it very difficult for foreign missionaries to be active in Russia. This law has been implemented and even increased in the last year, so it's ever more difficult for foreigners to be operative in Russia and to missionize, for example. But in terms of ideas, in terms of teaching, many of the evangelical and conservative Christian groups that saw Russia the former atheist Russia as a mission territory and the Russian Orthodox Church actually agree. They are on the same plane, so to speak. They advocate for the traditional family. They advocate a very strict pro-life course, so against abortion. And they advocate for a strong state authority and patriarchy. 
Professor Christina Stirkel. Her book is The Moralist International, Russia in the Global Culture War. And there's a link to her article at our webpage. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you'll hear about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Are the vicars of England about to walk out of their pulpits and onto the picket line? The trade union Unite has asked the Church of England to increase clergy pay by 10% to cope with the crippling cost of living. It's the first time ever that the priests have asked for a rise. Father Marcus Walker is vicar at the famous London church, St Bartholomew the Great. He's also a columnist with The Critic magazine. Father Walker, welcome. Um, Are priests about to go on strike? I don't think we are. If priests were to go on strike, they would be abandoning their flock. And I don't think that's the kind of thing that any priest would actually do. Even as you say, priests are not about to walk out of their pulpits. I gather there's a great sense of discontent among many Anglican vicars about their lot. What is at the root of this uh, discontent? Well, at the root of the discontent, I think, for an awful lot of priests is the way that they're treated by the National Church. The National Church likes to play a little bit of a game of bait and switch. Sometimes we are employees. Sometimes we are not employees. Broadly speaking, we are employees when it is to our disadvantage. We are not employees when it would be to our advantage. They managed to get around this by some careful legal footwork. What this has had as a result is that clergy have the second highest suicide rate of any profession or job in the United Kingdom. We are finding it increasingly difficult to recruit people to the priesthood. Priestly ministry appears increasingly disregarded by the episcopacy. The whole way in which the life and work of a priest has been changed over the last few years has just shattered morale. Mm. That is shocking to hear that vicars have the second highest suicide rate in the United Kingdom. Do we know why? I think it's a combination of things. The nature of the job where at heart there is very little boundary between what you do and who you are. And whenever, you know, just being alive, you are on duty, you're never not a priest, and that will always take a certain amount of its toll, and there's little way around that. But there's an awful lot that the church has done to make that considerably worse. They brought in about 10 years ago a new disciplinary procedure. There was a study done last year that showed that 40% of people who've been subjected to it have considered suicide are essentially isolated from your community, from your friends. You're publicly humiliated, even just as the process, even if you're found entirely not guilty. You are expected to admit to things before it's actually up in any kind of a tribunal, meaning that you're sort of expected to fess up to anything. Really, it's almost a Kafkaesque system. It's a deeply, deeply unpleasant mm. system, and that, that causes a lot of pain. Clergy's stipends, you mentioned the fact that the union are pushing for priests to have a 10% increase in the stipend. That's because it's been cut and cut and cut over the years, even whilst the church is happy to shower money on other things. When there's an excitable new fad, they're happy to spend money on that, but not actually on the people on the ground to keep the church going. Yes, and I can imagine you as the vicar of uh, Great St. Bartholomew's in the centre of London, probably one of the most expensive places in the world to live. How much is it a struggle? 
Um, it is a struggle. I know many, many clergy struggle. And that's particularly true if they have children, if they have other halves who don't work. It's a great difficulty, and for an awful lot of people, it's one that they can't actually sign up for, for an awful lot of people, or people who become non-stipendary priests where they maintain secular employment whilst also being a priest because they can't afford to live on the stipend that, that they're offered. Thomson Reuters report uh, said that uh, the Church of England had a £10.3 billion investment fund. If they're not paying their vicars properly, Father, what are they doing with that more than £10 billion? They blow it on all sorts of fabs. To be worked out that of the investment income that the Church of England has each year, that was all invested for the purposes of funding stipendary ministry, only 19% of it actually goes there. They spend an awful lot of it on head office, on backroom staff, um, an awful lot of it on funding political projects, so whether that's campaigns for net zero. They do an awful lot of that. The trouble is all of that siphons money away from the core purpose of the church, which is parochial ministry. And what are those often quite worthy campaigns worth, though, if there's no vicars in the pulpits, if there's no vicar to explain that there might be a gospel reason behind apology? There is a serious danger that the Church of England is, in a century's time, going to be the best-funded church in the world with no priests and no people. You are also part of a relatively new campaign. It's called Save the Parish. Just how dire is the circumstance to be needing a campaign called Save the Parish? Well, it's really quite serious. At the moment, for what in the context of an endowment fund of £10.2 billion are small fry amounts of money, diocese after diocese are essentially rolling up the parish system and turning it into something that is considerably worse for the people on the ground. The big examples at the moment are the Diocese of Leicester and Truro, where what they're planning to do is to essentially abolish the parish system, have huge mega parishes with priests on a sort of call-out rotor, so you'll never get to know your priest. If you've got a problem, you'll call up and somebody will be sent out to deal with your father's funeral or your, your wedding. They're reducing in both those dioceses the number of clergy by a considerable amount. In Leicester, it's by essentially 20%, which means that you'll rarely actually have communion in your own church. It's a very serious situation, and that's all for deficits of about £1 million that could be dealt with you know, out of the small change of the church commissioners. I mean, one of the loveliest things about Britain is that in every village, in most suburbs, there is a steeple that tells you here is a church, whether you're religious or not, it is a place for the community. What would happen if those churches start to close? Well, the tragedy is the community loses one of the big markers of its identity. The parish church tells the tale of a community over centuries. It's a place where people have been buried and have left their memorials. It's a place where wars and the war dead have been commemorated. It's a place where one set of theologies come in and people set up stained glass windows and then another set of theologies came in and paintings get whitewashed over and another set of theologies come in and new choir screens get put in and all of these get added to and added to and added to and the whole history and story of that community gets told. And suddenly what happens is that that community asset gets essentially privatised. 
it gets appropriate. It gets turned into private dwelling or a swimming pool or a Tesco. Suddenly, the community loses that great asset. And, of course, the village has one less thing to maybe attract a visitor. Well, probably the last thing. I mean, the last thing to close is generally the church. It's after the village doctor's gone and the village post office's gone and the village pub has gone. You know, quite often the priest is the last professional living in particularly the more deprived areas of the country. Thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Not at all. Thank you. And Father Marcus Walker is rector of the famous London parish, St Bartholomew the Great. And you're with Andrew West. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was on the phone at the weekend urging Vladimir Putin to show restraint when dealing with this mutiny by the Wagner group of mercenaries. Erdogan is beginning his third term after a narrow re-election last month. He's playing peacemaker in Ukraine, but at home he grows more autocratic. Professor Ori Soltis of Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. is the biographer of the man who's become Turkey's opposition leader in exile, the Muslim cleric Fethullah Gulen. And Ori Soltis has questions about Erdogan's re-election. In spite of the anticipatory conversations that uh, he was under threat, that he might not succeed in winning the election, I had no doubt that he would because he controls all the mechanisms that go from who gets to vote to how the votes are counted. So whatever the number of votes he actually got, and I suspect they're far fewer than what the results apparently present, we would have the results we have because he controls all of that. He ended up with a a Mm 52-48 victory. That is not the kind of result, though, that a dictator, that an autocrat looks for in an election if the election is rigged. That looks like a Western electoral result, very narrow. Yes, exactly. And he's a very clever politician. He has been always. He has played his cards very effectively. After all, he started out as a champion, apparently, of the Turkish democracy and at a certain point commented that democracy is a train you've got to know when to get off, it appears much more legitimate that he has apparently won with 52%. If he'd won with 80%, every Western eyebrow would be raised and doubt it, because that is the traditional way dictators like Putin or Mubarak or any of those characters represent their victories. But he never sweated. The whole time he was never nervous. And if he were as threatened, if his victory was as narrow as it appears, I think he would have been a lot more nervous going into things. Most autocrats also want to send the message to the world that I have no viable opposition. Even allowing your opposition to say that he's got 48% of the vote, again, not something an autocrat would do. Erdogan is acknowledging there is a very big minority against me. Yes, although that minority is contrived of a series of different individuals who add up to some form of an opposition. I think what will be interesting is what now happens, whom he does and whom he does not persecute. The one who would have been his true competitor, the mayor of Istanbul, he managed to have arrested on completely absurd charges, and that took the wind out of the sails of the opposition very, in a very significant way. Substantial bodies of Kurds did not actually get to vote because there were some glitches, apparently, in the electoral system. So it'll be interesting to see whether this man who has placed so, so many people in prison 
what he will do now with the opposition that was apparently on the surface mounting a charge against his, his full power. Now, during the election campaign, there was an interesting moment that I'm sure tweaked your interest as a biographer, and we're going to discuss that in a moment. The opposition leader, Kilish Derolu, made a reference to Fatullah Gulen, who's a noted Turkish uh, thinker and Islamic scholar in exile in the United States. He said that President Erdogan had had a close relationship with Fatullah Gulen. Is that true? That's a common misconception, an exaggeration. They were politically allied for a while because Gulen's convictions are that Islam and democracy are very compatible, that in fact democracy is the most appropriate form of government for Muslims. And he saw Erdogan as having the same kind of perspective. So together we could work to make Turkey, to reclaim its Islamic identity without causing it to lose its democratic identity. But it's clear that Gulen was deceived by Erdogan, but they were never tight. They were never close friends. They were politically allied for a while. And when it became convenient for Erdogan, and in a certain sense necessary, he turned on Gulen. And he turned on Gulen because Gulen has a following, has respect. He turned on Gulen because Gulen is genuinely a pious Muslim, and Erdogan has played the card of being a pious Muslim for public viewing. Uh, yeah, although pious Muslims in Turkey seem to believe that he's a pious leader, he's certainly liberated Muslims to be demonstrative in their faith in a way that they were not for 70 years under the Ataturk era. Absolutely correct. He, he has done that. And as I said, he's a very astute politician. He has played that card very effectively. He prays publicly which is something that is actually antithetical to what traditional pious Muslims think a pious Muslim should be and act. You don't exhibit publicly that kind of activity. He does. And yes, he has managed to convince many people as a consequence. Conservative Muslims, he has a large following in conservative Turkish women. Um, yeah, because he's been effective at that. Ori, you have written this uh, new book, Between Thought and Action, an intellectual biography of Fatullah Gulen. Is Fatullah Gulen an Islamist in some way? You'd have to be very broad, because typically, at least in the States, when we use the word Islamist, we're thinking of ISIS, we're thinking of the Taliban, we're thinking of individuals or groups whose interest it is in conquering the world according to their specific and particular vision of what Islam should be and everyone should succumb to that. That's never been Gulen's perspective. His perspective is not political, it's civic. His vision is how does Islam fit into the world, not how does Islam conquer the world. How do we live and work together to improve the world overall, all of us together, as opposed to how do we Muslims come to a point of domination over other denominations. So. In the common use of that term, I would never call them Islamist. I would call them a pious Muslim. Does he seek, though, a certain integration, at least in Muslim-majority countries, between the religious and political systems? Absolutely. Again, if I limit my, my response to what I perceive to be his vision for Turkey, Turkey would be a country that has Islam as its backbone, as it had for centuries, but a country in which not only different 
types of Muslims, because in many Muslim countries, if you're not a Shi'i, or if you're not a Sunni, or if you're not this, you're not that, you're not comfortable, but also every conceivable other form of faith would also be comfortable, including, by the way, atheists. So the secularists whom Ataturk wanted to dominate the new Turkey so that he was oppressing people of Muslim faith would also be welcome in the kind of Turkey that Gulen envisions. It's more than just a spiritual movement, though, Gulen's movement, the Hizmet movement. This, by the way, is also something that raises suspicion among its critics because Gulen's movement has links in business. It, right. In Turkey, it had links uh, in the legal system. It has a following among some powerful people. This may have alarmed Erdogan, but it also raises questions among its critics, right. doesn't it? What does this movement actually seek to do? Yeah. So two things. One, as I became involved more with it, and it was often referred to as the Gulen movement, I made the comment to members of it. I say, you call it the Gulen movement to American ears, sounds like it's a cult. And they said, yes, he doesn't like it being called that. So gradually, that has been changed. It exchanged for the word hizmet, which in Turkish means service. And that encapsulates what his teaching and his preaching is all about. It's about serving humanity. He identifies three issues, ignorance, poverty, and disagreements, violent disagreements, as really at the heart of what's not going right in the world. And as a consequence, his people all over the world have created schools, have created interfaith programs, so trying to solve the problem of ignorance, trying to solve the problem of poverty, trying to solve the problem of social dissonance. So as a consequence, there are people from all kinds of walks of life, as well as people who are Turkish, not Turkish, Muslim, not Muslim, Jews, Christians, Sikhs, who are one way or another engaged and involved with them, because ultimately what he's all about is not just thinking, but action. Altruistic, that's the word he uses all the time, altruistic action. In an age of increasing nationalism, is Gulen's movement anti-nationalist? Let me put it this way. A Sufi like Rumi, right, 13th century mystic and poet, is a dyed-in-the-wool Muslim. But he writes things like, I go into a church, a mosque, a synagogue, I see one altar. He's a universalist. There's no contradiction for him in being a universalist and being a dyed-in-the-wool, very intense Muslim. For Gulen, there's no contradiction between being a universalist and if you're a Turk, a Turkish nationalist. But it's not about Turkey. Since the early 90s, for the last 30 years, he came to realization it's not about Turkey, it's not about Muslims, it's about the world, because we all swim together or we, or we all sink together. So in a fundamental way, he is anti-nationalist. Professor Ori Soltis, his book is called Between Thought and Action, an intellectual biography of Fatula Gulen, and he was in Australia with the Affinity Foundation. And that's the show for this week. You can find us using the ABC Listen app. Thanks to Hong Jang and Tegan Nichols. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.